This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Hello, listeners. I've got a special surprise for you this week. Instead of doing our typical Friday newscast, I am sharing a recent discussion that I had with author Damien Dibbon about his latest novel, The Color Storm. Set in the cutthroat art world of Renaissance Venice, The Color Storm is all about the search for a new color. The daring young painter, Giorgione, is in the fight for his life to beat his rivals and find it first. A searing tale of creation, ambition, rivalry, and passion at one of the most seismic turning points in history, and it is filled with characters both familiar and new, and it is full of unexpected turns. It is an excellent read and one that art lovers are sure to enjoy. Damien Dibbon is the best-selling author of Tomorrow and the internationally acclaimed History Keepers series. He went to art school to study theater design, which led him first to become an actor and then to become a screenwriter. Adapting books for the screen in Hollywood inspired him to turn his hand to writing his own books. His hugely successful series, The History Keepers, was written for children and young adults, and his subsequent novels, Tomorrow and The Color Storm, are for adults. He found the writing and research for this novel so revelatory that he returned to his studio to make a collection of artworks and furniture inspired by the book. So check out this episode. You will not be disappointed. Damien Divin, thank you so much for being here today. What inspired you to write this book? Because I know that you have an interest in history, your other books, your background. But what about this one and kind of digging into the art world was inspiring or interesting to you? I'll just quickly say the book is what it's about. It's all about the set in the art world of the Renaissance. It's all about a search for a new colour. And our kind of leading character through it is a painter called Giorgione who existed and he is uh, on the hunt for this new colour that's newly arrived in Venice. And his search for it gets him into increasingly dangerous territory. So it's all about art and ambition and the Renaissance and about colour and marks we leave on the world. So with that in mind, the original inspiration was actually, there were two things that happened in the same week, as often happens, it's like a chemical reaction. And <laughs> the first was I'd seen this exhibition at the Royal Academy here in London, Giorgione, and I knew the name and I knew he was quite a pivotal painter, but that was all I knew. And then of course I found that he died very young, very much at the start of his career, and he would have been this utterly famous household name, probably, had he lived. Uh, so that exhibition was fascinating. The painting was fascinating. Learning about Venetian painting of that era, because really, you could say Venetian painting dominated the 16th century. It took over from the Florentines in a way, which was Vinci and Michelangelo. Giorgione and Bellini might have started it and then Titian and then Veronese and then Tintoretto and these epic figures and just how Venetian painting was so different and so much about colour and landscape as opposed to all being about kind of humans and the soul and the body and 
much more almost impressionistic and I found that really fascinating and I wanted to tell his story at the same time I heard was hearing an interview about a contemporary artist Anish Kapoor who a British mm -hmm. artist and he I can't remember what it was but it was around the time that he had copyrighted this black banter black oh uh, yeah which is the kind of blackest black that's ever been though I think they've created a uh, an even blacker one now but it swallows up 99.9 .9 something percent of light and uh, he copyrighted it so no one else could use it and then this kind of little war started between all these other artists and then someone created something called the pink is pink and then he wouldn't <laughs> he kind of put on his website available for everyone except Anish Kapoor or anyone working with Anish Kapoor or anyone who even likes Anish Kapoor. It was, <laughs> it was kind of ridiculous, but it was, I thought, what if the stakes were that much higher? And then, of course, I learned, I mean, it seems obvious now that I've done all the research, but how incredibly valuable pigment was and star colour of the Renaissance was ultramarine, which is yes. the lapis lazuli which is found, was found then, possibly still now, I don't know, in this one place in Af Afghanistan, in the mountains there. And it would have come through Venice originally, and it would have, it was worth more than gold in, in sort of comparable weight, probably a lot more. And so I wanted to imagine there was a colour even more amazing than ultramarine, and that this could be the inspiration this could lead to a great success of, of a painter so the stakes got much higher than this war between Anish Kapoor in the present day that it could go all the way to to losing your life in pursuit of a color I loved that and I agree with you I love the idea of the war for the color and the way that you bring through this mystery where everyone is really I love that you mentioned the big names because you weave such incredible historical figures into the story, not only having Giorgione be the hero of the story, but also you do bring in nods and actual appearances by people like Michelangelo in a way mm -hmm. that's so fun. But it does lead you toward that sense of, it isn't just art. It's never just art. Art is always at the behest of something bigger, whether it's show a legacy, whether it's to explain emotion. It, these are people's jobs and these are people's lives. Why was it, Jordan, that you chose to be the central focal point, the central historical figure? I think part of the reason was I liked the fact that he was lesser known because it, in the same way that, that Amadeus is such a brilliant biopic of Mozart because it's looking from a very particular viewpoint of a much lesser known composer but that obviously Salieri and that was not a nice man and Giorgio <laughs> is rather amazing but I like the idea of viewing it so you're seeing all those famous figures and this was someone who was living working at the same time as you said as Michelangelo, Leonardo, Raphael, Titian who was in fact Giorgione's student and I love the idea examining that world and those famous people from a kind of more manageable viewpoint so almost those characters are just always in the background, which makes them more intriguing and alluring and allows you to tell their story um, in a way that it just fits in with the time that they came from and everything makes sense that this incredible period in history produced all these people. So it puts it all in perspective. And yeah, I it was fascinating because, as you said, they appear in very you know, 
pieces here and there. And I wanted deliberately, actually, I made the meeting with Da Vinci. He's such a kind of an enormous figure in art. (laughs) I thought I have to really underplay it. And he's always in, he's, when they meet, he's on the other side of a canal and it's at night and they're talking across the canal and Da Vinci's just this, almost this silhouette. And I just thought that made it more intriguing for the reader. It really sort of made made it better in embedded it into a kind of reality but I loved that. but it was very interesting seeing because Leonardo you just fall in love with the more you learn about him because he was such a sort of generous and funny and worldly person such a wise person so interested in everything and Michelangelo on the other hand was just by all accounts was this sort of terrible mean-spirited, always complaining, never happy. And it's interesting to contrast those two great geniuses and how different they were. So you don't have to be nice at all to be a genius, but it's just an added (laughs) bonus if you are. (laughs) That's true. I agree with that. No, it's really fun because it's evident from your storytelling that you did the work, the historical research. You seem to have really loved to tell the stories of these characters, but you also understood them. And so I loved those nods to the personalities of Michelangelo, of Leonardo, because you're absolutely right. Michelangelo was a grump and a grouch. And Leonardo, I think we think of him as so mysterious, but there's so much that points to him as being a warm, funny person even, which I think is really interesting. Oh, absolutely. He was gregarious. He loved people. He loved company he loved ideas. He just just the interchange of ideas. Yeah, it was but an absolutely a love of people that that was went hand in hand with his kind of fascination of them and his ability to deconstruct everything around. Yeah, he would have been a great person to be sat next to at dinner. Absolutely. And I think I feel that way about the way that you portrayed Giorgione also, because We know so little about him. And I myself, I'm not a Renaissance specialist, but I feel like I only know about The Tempest, maybe Mm. a work or two off the top of my head. But we know so little about him, as you mentioned, because he died so young. And he really didn't leave all of that much in terms of artwork behind. So Mm. appreciated the way that you were able to imagine his story and take us through this time period. One of the only things you obviously know about Giorgione is because of his name, which is basically Big George. So, you know, it was, I got the feeling of a very kind of a man who was quite physically imposing, very ease with himself. And I think when you combine that with the art, which is so sensitive and luxurious and really takes you to these kind of wonderful places, you, I don't know, you you make a picture of someone that that can only be, magnetic I think um, but also kind yes and I found something that I really wanted to ask you about that was in a little Q&A that you had provided for press that you had someone specific in mind an actor when you were writing the part of Giorgione would you mind sharing that with our audiences yeah I think I guess I'm allowed to say this but I had actually been thinking of Robert Pattinson obviously most recently in Batman the Br- uh, British actor and uh, I don't know why he cut he's obviously the right age he's the right build he's got that he's got the right sort of complexity and interesting enough because he's with the same agency as me and he <laughs> I've read about the the book when it was in manuscript form and has asked 
to read a copy. So watch this space. That would be amazing. I do want to step back for a minute just because we've talked about actors and movies. I want to talk a little bit about your background because you did not start as a fiction writer. Is that correct? No, absolutely not. I would not have thought that I could write ever. I wasn't that good at at school, at English and so on. So I loved it. I loved books. But I was very much found myself in the kind of visual arts world. And I originally actually trained as a set designer. But obviously we had to be, you did all the arts. There was painting and drawing and making of things. So yeah, that, that was my background. So everything starts with physical objects and I still love making things but we might talk about that in a bit and I through one thing and another I started writing film scripts and still that didn't feel like writing so I did kind of really well I worked here in Hollywood for about 10 years uh, but that was felt to me like just it wasn't writing it was just giving instruction because it's all to do with the final product of the film so literally just giving instructions for how it to be kind of conducting. And then it was in the process of doing that that I started reading, being sent books with a view to adapt. I just thought, oh, well, maybe I could actually write a book. And I obviously love it because it's a way of training all these different areas. And I see it as like a book is like almost in my head producing a movie, which I'm designing the clothes of and editing and doing the sound and doing the lighting and doing the sets, acting the characters. So it's just a way of bringing everything together in my head. And it's so satisfying to have this one complete kind of result of all your imaginings. Uh, And I just absolutely love it. Having that background with filmmaking in all of these different areas, you mentioned the set design, acting, writing, and then you get to perform all of those roles internally and externally when you write this book. I love that. And also then it is also this, what is so satisfying is that it then is a finished product. In a way, when I was a screenwriter, you you never have the finished product, even on the few times, because most films that get commissioned still never get made but even the ones that do you you feel so removed from it by that stage it's not your finished product it's always very much the director's finished product or even the producers but weirdly never the writers so you don't get that final satisfaction that you do with a book we will be right back thanks for listening It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice though, they really mean flavor. Like in your face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either, but it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice, anything but subtle. 
With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Moving out of your career as a screenwriter, maybe in tandem with it, when you began writing, you chose, I'm thinking especially of your History Keeper series, which is, from what I know of it, very popular and wonderful that's for a younger audience. Can you tell me a little bit about how that was, how that came about and how you chose specifically to write for younger audiences in that case? Yes, the answer's simple, really. I uh, So History Keepers is it's a series of books. It's all about, it starts off anyway, about a boy who finds out his parents are lost in history. He then discovers they've been working for this secret service called the History Keepers, who essentially protect the course of history, uh, which involves some very physically realised time travelling. But it's it's an adventure series. It's like a, it's almost like a kind of young James Bond through history, as it were. And I, the reason I started in that genre, because that is where I'd arrived in the film world, as it were. So I'd originally sold a script to Miramax, I think, and then it... Uh, more and more, I was getting commissioned to do what they call family films, the sort of films that sort of Pixar or Disney would put out. I found myself to be very good in that arena, and which I was delighted with because it really suited me. And it's probably where most of the money was as well. So everything was right about it. And for some reason, I thought the book world will be exactly the same. So I kind of crossed over for that reason in that kind of genre. And though I did actually do, in the end, incredibly well from that book, it was only when I started that that I realised there's actually this, I don't know if it's the same in America, but in the UK, there's this weird snobism about, you know, literature for younger people, and which you don't get in film. It's almost the complete opposite. Some of the Pixar films, for example, are probably some of the best written films of the last 20 years, I'd say. So I just couldn't understand, and I still don't understand that kind of snobbism. And I don't think the fact that snobbish should put people off, because I think still a quarter of all books sold are children's books. But yeah, you find yourself fighting against it occasionally, just a bit confused by it. Because I just think stories... Great stories should work for all ages and, you know, they, sh- they shouldn't be put into boxes. But again, I do understand the commercial reason, reasons that they are. But you'd have thought Harry Potter would have changed everything, but it just <laughs> turned out to be, it, it just went back to how it was after that, if you see what I mean. I do. And I am also with you. I think I'm very surprised because I would have thought a story, a good story is a good story for everyone, really. So yeah. I surprised about that. Did that divide between telling a story for families versus in, in books versus movies? Did any of that or did all of that come into play with choosing to write The Color Storm, for example, other books for more adult audiences? I did. I mean, I did. I wanted to do it just because essentially writing books was 
quite new to me. I realised that in, I enjoyed it so much. And I realised that once you start in a particular lane, you sometimes get stuck there. And I just thought, well, I don't want to get stuck. I want to be able to write what I want. So it seemed right to go to off to more to an adult audience, but definitely with the view of coming back. There's a British writer who's also with the same agent as me called Matt Haig, and he very much does both and finds that I know him a bit and he finds that as satisfying as I do yeah I would to be involved in all things and actually an, another <laughs> term that I I find that diminishes what's there is this is the term historical fiction which I just wow. makes me slightly kind of shrink I just don't see why it's needed I just like films you know you take a film like titanic or something yeah you wouldn't necessarily call that an historical film you just call it a film so i don't i feel the same with books why restrict yourself it's just fiction it's like a great story absolutely Um, but yeah sorry digressing (laughs) i know but that's an excellent point and i totally agree with you it's one of those things that i feel is a movable line to which i don't know that anybody has the exact pinpoint of what that line is or where it is it's no. not art and contemporary art those boundaries are loose and we used to in the museum where I previously worked we used to joke that if an artist was dead then they would be considered a modern artist or if <laughs> alive they would be contemporary even though that is not necessarily true given stylistic differences and so forth I feel that way with historical fiction how far back does a story have to take place in time to yeah that be considered historical and agree with you. I think those are very nondescript lines and unnecessary in many cases. But when it break, when a book breaks out of that, those boundaries, so like a book like Perfume, which is a sort of worldwide, or Hamnet or Wolf Hall or something, they now, once they've broken free of it, then they're not thought of as historical fiction. They're just thought of as fiction. Yeah. I don't know why historical fiction just can't be fiction. You know, what's the difference? That's true. I also understand that there are business mechanics, which is very much someone else's job. So you just have to go with the, with the way it is at the moment. But I just, I wouldn't want something, a term to put people off. That's That's what I worry about most. I wouldn't like that. It's historical. That's something different. These sorts of people would read that. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if it's, now this is a question, I don't know that this actually is true or not, but I'm wondering if if there's a distinction between historical fiction because you have to delve so much into the research of understanding the time, the time period, the Mm. real figures that you're working with. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about that. Did you, I'm assuming you went to Venice or did you have to spend a lot of time there? And what was your research process like for understanding this era in history and also Renaissance Venetian art. You paint the picture, you know, pun intended, so <laughs> that it truly feels like when you're reading it, I could so clearly see what you're describing. And that's a testament to your fine writing of it. Yes. What was this, this was probably the first, it definitely was the first place I ever went to abroad, I think when I was 12. And it, obviously I fell in love with it then. It's such an incredible, I mean, it's as incredible as you think it's going to be often Mm. more. And it was the place I probably ended up going back to more than any other. 
And I did feel I got to know it well. I stayed there for a month, a few years before writing the book. And the more, you know, you just start to learn a bit and your knowledge just grows so quick. And I, I learned about not only the importance of the city at that time, it was probably the richest city on earth, I would imagine. And because of its location, it was where everything, so much was suddenly coming from the east of Europe at that point. So much of the kind of ideas from the middle, but also the kind of physical things, the silk and the spices and the colour, of course. And this was a time at the beginning of the 16th century that world trade was absolutely taking off for the first time. So ships were suddenly sailing around the globe. And at the same time, people's mindset was also changing because now, you know, we're into our fourth decades of books being printed and essentially mass produced. So knowledge is suddenly passing out at the same time as you've got this in, these goods and information coming in and nearly all of it threaded through Venice at that time. So it was, and there was, so there were two things, obviously an enormous amount of money but also an enormous amount of interest in the world and in how things work and in science and mathematics and geography. All aspects of everything became an exciting topic at that time. And Ben has been absolutely thrillingly alive. And a small, yeah, the, when you start that kind of research, it just, it's so easy to accumulate more and more because it's all so fascinating. And it just, especially with the internet now, just stuff comes at you. That's true. I imagine that it almost felt like a rabbit hole in many cases because it's just such an intriguing place. And again, these intriguing characters that you brought together, that was actually something I appreciated that I'm, I alluded to a little bit earlier where you would bring in these big names that I would think that even, at least in the case of Michelangelo and Leonardo, those are names that I think everybody knows. Maybe people don't know Titian as much, Bellini as much, but if you're an art fan or an art historian, or if you're familiar with that world, you would certainly know these characters. But it's funny because even as a curator and a historian, it's almost like I put them all in their individual boxes. Michelangelo in the Rome box and the Florence box. I put Leonardo in similar boxes and or I put him over in Milan, even though these artists truly traveled and they went and they knew each other's works. They were contemporaries. Some of them were colleagues. Some of them were enemies. But I like to bring them together and really showcase that this was not a static realm and neither was art at this time at all i'm thinking about giorgione or zorzo i guess is how i want to refer to him now because that nickname is how he's referred to so much in this book but talking about how he went to the scrivani chapel and was copying giotto works from there thinking about that spread of knowledge and the sharing and the curiosity that all of these figures had about the art that was created even just a century or two beforehand into the works that was being created really contemporaneously is really fascinating. And I think that's a wonderful thing that you helped to showcase in this book. Yeah, it was learning about the life of the of a painter in that time was never stopped being fascinating. How the workshops work. So you get 50 or 60 apprentices in one of these workshops. And they're almost like film studios, and everyone had a sort of task to do, everyone moving towards this kind of final point of this incredible painting. 
And this was at a time when oil paint was still relatively new, newly being used, certainly in Italy. And that, of course, brought all this incredible vibrancy. And these images they were creating would have been more lifelike than the real life around you, which would have probably all been quite brown and dull. And to be able to have this incredible, vibrant intensity, it would have been amazing. And yeah, they were all in competition with each other. There was all, there's a section in the book about when we meet Michelangelo, about his physical state. And he's been at the, yes. the, in the scene in the book, he's been up on the scaffold in, in the Sistine Chapel for two years. And when I actually learned what it would have been like being up on one of these scaffolds, essentially miles up in the air, terrified at all, at any given moment that the scaffold might collapse and kind of fall to your death trying to paint in these sort of great big large areas without having any idea not you're not able to go and have a a look very often to see how it's all going so you've really got to go with your intuition and you've got paint dripping in your eyes and you've got the fear of the, if the plaster kind of sets at the wrong time the paint won't be stable and just so much going on and just that example on its own just was illustrated how how sort of physical the life of the painter was and how many choices they had to make when they they had to decide whether they were going to be on the road or they were going to live somewhere and have have a family and you couldn't be both um, because you either had to be on the road and go to where the commissions were or you had to make enough a name of yourself to be able to stay in one place and work from there which is actually a lot of the Venetian I and mean, someone like Titian did manage to do that he just he didn't travel a lot. He just set up in, in Venice. I really loved that scene that you're talking about with Michelangelo, because I think you even introduced that physicality in a way that I forgot about at the moment where you're having characters say what's wrong with his eyes, because he would have had that eye, the paint splattering down into them was a shocking moment. Because again, I it's almost like he's here in Venice. He's away from Rome. You wouldn't have thought that that um, physical essence would have followed him in this point in his journey but that's so fascinating and it of course again just brings you into being able to paint that picture of the narration in your head so I love that I mm. want to talk a little bit about the creation of works of art and so I wanted to ask a little bit because you did something really interesting in that you created some furniture and some artworks in tandem with making this novel come together and I want to know a little bit more about that what inspired you to actually make works of art and bits of furniture in conjunction mm. with the book and where did you go with that I have just launched the collection damiendibbonfurniture.com and there's a, I've got 60 objects on there 30 odd pieces of furniture all of which I have mostly made from a combination of things I'll start with one element that's really beautiful and then I'll build the piece around it some things from scratch and some things I haven't done that much to except for maybe change the color of them or something and everything is inspired by the book it's incredibly colorful for a start but it has that sort of obviously Venice is used the idea of creation the idea of geometry and all those different themes of how workshops worked the idea every piece in it is like a sort of little bit of escapism for example there's one piece called lazuli which is 
in this sort of famous Renaissance lapis lazuli, ultramarine blue. And it's actually a cocktail cabinet, but it's got these incredible angel wings as doors. And then inside it's lined in this sort of dark blue velvet with this Chinese silkwork tapestry at the back of the cupboard. And it's really beautiful. It's like a sort of jewel box, but it's actually for drinks. I could use it for something else. And the idea of it is it's just, it's like a little world in itself. It's like you escape into the world of the book of Renaissance Venice. You escape into the world that this drinks cabinet presents you with. Just looking at it is like a tiny bit of escape, which is what all pieces of furniture should be and i think probably are when you see a piece of furniture it makes you feel something you just enjoy it being there it's just nice having it in front of you it's visually appealing you may not even know why and uh, yeah i just wanted to express myself in that physical way because obviously the whole book is about creation and i wanted i just couldn't help myself i just wanted to start making things myself like all the characters in the book things so yeah, I it, the two things just went side by side. So I would write for, you know, for a portion of the day and then make things for a couple of hours in the afternoon. And yeah, absolutely loved it. And we did, we just had a an exhibition of all the work in Notting Hill here in London. And yeah, it was, we had kind of parties every night and it was great. It was really great. It was really brought, it was a sort of dose of, pure kind of colour and escapism in what was the very horrible beginning of February. I can imagine that having that brightness of colour and just a pop would infuse a little bit of joy in that kind of drab end of winter phase. So I support this highly. What do you, walking away from this book, what do you hope that readers take away from this story? For me, the... I obviously I love writing about people who either change the world in some way or who attempted to change the world, who have this kind of higher kind of ambition. And I find that really fascinating. And and you would read it and think, okay, what am I doing? And what are the marks I'm making? One of the kind of main points of the book is, yeah, fame is one thing as well. Fame of Michelangelo and Leonardo, that goes for something. But actually, it's it's also the marks you make on the people around you. And those two things are playing off each other all the time. You know, what it's like to be an artist and to succeed as an artist, but also what it's like to be a person and what makes you successful as a person. What would make you, at the end of your life, to look back and think, okay, that wasn't too bad, or I'm leaving something good here. Yeah, it's playing with those things. It's not necessarily coming to a conclusion, but it's kind of asking the question. Damien Divin, thank you so much for being here today. No, it was a pleasure to be here and to speak to you. Thanks for listening to this bonus interview with Damien Dibbon. Please do pick up a copy of The Color Storm if you are so inclined. I have included links in the podcast show notes today, and you can also find them on Damien's website, damiendibbon.com. Please do check out his awesome furniture also at DamienDibbonFurniture.com. There are some truly beautiful, bright, and amazing pieces there. So thank you again for listening today, and we'll be back with you soon. Until then, stay curious.